0: Have you ever read a story and you wanted to know how it ends, so you flip to the back of the book? Have you ever watched a movie and you're just a little anxious what's going on, so you want to know how it ends, so you move to the end of the movie? My daughter, Hallie, she's the anxious type. Uh, Don't know where she gets that from, but uh, she, she can't handle until she knows how it goes. So you try to watch a movie with her from the very first scene. She's, hey, dad, who's that? Hey, Dad, what's their story? Hey, Dad, how's this end? And I'm like, babe, the movie came out three minutes ago. Like, I have no idea. Like, we're at the theater the very first time. But I get it. She wants to know how it ends. When I was a kid, some of you guys might remember Nancy Drew. Anybody remember the Nancy Drew books? Oh, man, I used to love these. The Hardy Boy novels, right? Adventures with the Hardy Boys. And what was so great about these books, many of you might remember, is you got to choose your own adventure. Page 32, hey, if you want to know what happens with the treasure on the submarine, turn to page 79. But if you want to know what happened with the chef in the, with the pipe in the study, turn to page 110. Well, that was Clue. Hold on. But anyways, you guys know what I mean. It's choose your own adventure, and you could find out how the story ended. So what I used to do is I'd flip to the end. I'd see which plot line I liked the best, and then I'd go back to page 32, right? And I'd be like, okay, which way do I want to go? You know, a lot of us read Revelation that way. We, we, we turn to the end of the book and we say, okay, well, I want to know how the story ends. And as Pete said so eloquently in the voiceover, we know that God wins. But I don't know about you. When you get to the last book of the Bible, it's confusing. It's all kinds of weird pictures and strange patterns and things about seven. And so you, it's hard to choose your adventure. Because you get to the end and you're like, man, this is spooky stuff. So how do I understand it? How do I wrap my mind around it? Well, that's what we're gonna do over the next several weeks as we try to unpack this amazing letter that the apostle John wrote. And and often we flip to this, we flip to this book and we we kind of expect there to be like this fairy tale ending, and then we get here and we're not really sure. It looks not very fairy tale-ish. Looks like wars and blood and all kinds of weird things. So I think it's important that we unpack it and spend some time understanding why this book actually matters. If you've been with us for a while, we've been in a series called The Greater Story. And this series we've been in since January of 2022. And we've, we've broken it out into seven, eight, little mini sermon series to try to help us see how the whole Bible comes together. How from book of Genesis to the book of Revelation, uh, chapter one to chapter 22, it ties together this story of God's goodness and God's grace and God's redemption for God's people, for God's world. And we have spent a lot of time kind of walking through the why, the sin, the garden, the who, Jesus, us. But now we're gonna to get to a thing that dry, kind of draws us all in is what happens someday? What happens in the future? You know, we have all heard little things about the book of Revelation or we've heard things that we've maybe pulled out of the book of Revelation, which by the way, it's the book of Revelation, not the book of Revelations, just so you know, right? How many of you thought it was Revelations? Let's be honest, with an S? None of you, got one. Honest. Honest. But it, it is the book of Revelation. God is revealing something to John, the apostle John. And so this it is a, it really is a crazy book. How many of you saw the Left Behind series or read the Left Behind books? All right. You're going to see it all the same way today. We're going to, it's the same story, but opposite actually. <laughs> the, 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 one of the beautiful things about the Left Behind series, it's a great story. I just don't know that it fits with what we see in the book of Revelation. So we're going to do a good job of unpacking this. We're not going to spend a year in it, though. We're going to spend about six, seven weeks hitting the highlights. Because if we're going to spend time in the greater story and we're seeing the purpose behind why God gave us this book to reveal to us his word and his redemption, uh, the story of his redemption, then we need to see how the story ends. But when we get to the book of Revelation, it's not about some future thing about crashing planes, microchips in your hand, and disappearing people. This book was written in the first century to seven literal, legit, historical churches. And today, that's what we're going to look at. We're going to start off... Got to come, I'm going to give you a teaser. You've got to come back next week and the week after if you want to find out about microchips and marks of the beast and all that fun stuff. And, and, you know, is the rapture real? Is it not real? We'll tell you later. But today, you've got to come back for that. We're going to start the book by trying to understand what really is going on in the book of Revelation. So, sorry to crush your, your mellow if you were hoping to see Kirk Cameron or Nick Cage. He's not here. And this is not Terminator 2 just so you know, okay? Just get that out of the way. Revelation is a picture of the future. It's a picture of the end of the story, but it's not a fairy tale. It's a challenge to the seven churches that Jesus speaks to, but that challenge exists for us. It's a challenge for you and me today as well. And so we're gonna, we're gonna dive in. We're just gonna jump in verse one, chapter one, verse one. Notice what the apostle John says in Revelation chapter one, verse one. He says this, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants, the things that must soon take place. So it's this picture of what's going to happen. It says this, that he made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. Look at verse three. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Okay. The time is near. And this relates to you and me in 2023 as well. Now, before we dig in, there's a couple of little housekeeping things we need to talk about. Revelation is what we call apocalyptic literature. Somebody say that apocalyptic. apocalyptic. Apocalyptic literature. So, when you hear the word apocalypse or apocalyptic, what do you think of? The world is ending, right? Like, oh my gosh, there's zombies and bombs, and crazy stuff, and the Raiders made the playoffs. Like, you're like, what's going on, right? Like, <laughs> it's over. But actually, the apocalypse is a great word. It means to uncover or to reveal. And so, an apocalypse is when you see the true nature of something that you couldn't see before. Now, if you guys, some of you guys went to, Darren did a, we did a seminar this morning, talk about the book of Revelation. Some of you spent time in a study Darren did last year through the book of Revelation, uh, The the book of Revelation is really interesting because it's tying in to so many things that were revealed or uh, uncovered, prophesied in the Old Testament, the book of Daniel, the book of Ezekiel, other places. And so when you get to this book, you have to understand it's a type of literature, right? Psalms, anybody read the book of Psalms? That's what type of literature? Poetry, right? When you get to the book of Genesis, what type of literature is that? narrative. When you get to the book of Revelation, there's a lot of different literatures going on, but one of the most prominent ones we see is the literature of apocalyptic literature. And so imagine with me, think back to the old Testament. There's examples of this all over the place. Isaiah six. Some of you might know Isaiah six. We see Isaiah, he gets this vision. He's in the throne room of God. He sees God sitting on his throne and around him are these six winged angels. And they have two wings covering their eyes, two wings covering their feet, and two wings covering the air. Now, it's a weird, spooky image, right? Well, what are they doing in that that moment? If you guys know the story, they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord our God. And there's this picture that God is so holy that they can't even look at him, right? What I love about that is it's like, it's a reminder that Jesus isn't your homeboy, or Jesus isn't your boyfriend, or what, right? Jesus is the Holy Son of God, right? There's so much we can take away from apocalyptic literature. Daniel, if you go to the book of Daniel, Daniel has these dreams about beasts and about armor and about different types of metal. And you're like, what does that mean? Well, it's pointing forward to something that we have to try to digest to understand. And the book of Revelation uncovers a lot of that. So when we read Revelation, we think, hey, someday all this crazy stuff's gonna happen. What we have to realize is that what, Jesus told John was a word picture to try to make sense of a lot of the things that Daniel and Isaiah and Ezekiel saw in the Old Testament. And that's why it's important to spend time trying to uncover so much of the imagery and so many of these patterns. But the idea behind this is that this literature gives people a heavenly perspective on their earthly situation. It can give us hope, but it also can challenge us and cause us to change everything. And here, here's what I wanted to just kind of begin with. At the heart of this last book of the Bible, Jesus gives John a vision. And, and this vision with all sorts of things that seem strange. At, ultimately, what we're going to see is that Jesus gives John this vision that he writes to the seven churches, and he gives them a challenging question. Here's the question. I want you guys to ponder it today. Here's the question that he asks the church, and it's the question he asks us. Are you going to choose compromise? or faithfulness. Jesus is speaking through John to a group of Christians who are being persecuted for the faith. And he writes to seven churches and he writes to these seven churches and he says, look, you guys are getting persecuted for your faith. Your friends are dying. You're hiding. You're meeting in houses under the cover of darkness. And so you've got a choice to make. Are you going to choose compromise Or are you gonna choose faithfulness? And the interesting thing is that same question is asked to us today. You and I have that same thing. Thankfully, we're not experiencing the persecution like the church in uh, the 90s AD when John wrote this book was. But we still have the same question upon us, laid upon our hearts every single day in our culture is that are we going to choose compromise or do we choose faithfulness? And I think this is really important for us because so many of us might be at a point in our life where we have to make that decision. And I hope the book of Revelation can help draw us back to the right path. Okay, so let's, let's just jump in here and, and let's listen well. So pick back up, Revelation verse, chapter one, verse four. Notice, um, notice what, what we see here. It says this, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Isn't that awesome? I just love that. Like grace from God who, who is, who was, and who is to come. Look at verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. It's like, well, who's writing this letter? John is, but God, Jesus, gives him the vision. No, no, it's verse 9 here. Let's pick up verse 9. It says this, I, John, your brother... And your partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So he says, I was on the island of Pat- Patmos. Now, here's a picture real quick. Patmos was an was a island. It was a, just an island really off, off mainland. And you see Ephesus there. You see Miletus. And then you can see Patmos in the bottom left corner. It was a a Roman penal colony. So basically, at that point in time, John was arrested for preaching the gospel. He was arrested for being a pastor at the church in Ephesus, and he gets sent in exile to the island of Patmos, where he is going to be punished for his faith. And this was a heavy time of persecution, and it's at on this island that John gets this vision that we're gonna see through the rest of the book. Now, verse 10, notice what John says. He says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice. So he's praying, he's spending time in the word, spending time with uh, with, with the Lord. And he says, he gets this vision and he hears this voice and it says this, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Okay, so again, real quick, no mystical, no mystical book here. He's right. It says, write this letter to these literally literal seven churches. Now, here's a map. If you want to know where these churches are, just kind of take your picture of Mediterranean Sea. You see Ephesus. We just saw uh, Patmos, right? And so he's saying, John, write this letter to these seven churches. Now, this is kind of interesting, though, You might wonder, why these seven? At this point in time, there's a lot of churches, not big churches, but there's a lot of house churches in different places, all the way from Greece through Turkey and Asia Minor, all the way down to the Middle East. Why these seven? and there's a lot of theories on this. It is a really important question to ask, and, but, but one of the reasons scholars think is that, as you notice here, five of these seven, it's a circular trade route, and five of these seven were located in what they call the Lycus Valley. So it was an important trade route from the Aegean Sea to the Mediterranean Sea. So the, these letters were written specifically to these churches, but what was written could be taken away for all believers. And so let's write a letter to these churches that can be circulated around all the other towns, And that was often how it worked in the early church. So often what would happen was you'd have a a biblical author would write a letter and he would say, send it to the church in Corinth. They would read it in the church of Corinth. They would copy it and pass it around to other churches. That way everybody could hear what was being written. People weren't able to get emails in those days. Twitter wasn't very good back then. And so it was really letters and and copy, you know, they didn't it was like we're talking fifteen hundred years so the Gutenberg press was invented, right? So Dudes were copying this by hand, circulating them around to other churches. And so by the time we get to the book of Revelation, it's about 80, 90, right? What year did Jesus die? Anybody remember? 30-ish, right? So we're talking 60 years after Jesus died. It was thought that John was about 17 when he started following Jesus, right? So we kind of figured John follows Jesus for three years. He's 20 when Jesus dies. John's been serving in the church for for another 60 years. How old is John? Math majors? 80. John's about 80. And he gets exiled to Patmos. Now, all the other apostles died in some kind of tragic, horrible death situation, except John. So why is John exiled to Patmos instead of beheaded like some of the other guys? Because he's 80, right? Like, who wants to hurt a very sweet, gentle, older guy, right? Probably. I'm speculating. I'm speculating, but that most likely, right? Like this guy, he's 80. What's he gonna do? You know, like let's. By the way, if you're 80, love you guys. Love you guys. So he he gets sent to the island of Patmos, and it's at Patmos that God gives him this vision. About 80, 90, it was pretty con- pretty much all the churches had all of Paul's letters they had the gospels uh, Matthew Mark Luke and John and it was pretty much concise uh, understanding on what was the new testament by 8090 don't listen to what people say by about 8090 there was consensus on this and so John writes this between 8090 and 8095 okay so when this letter goes out the church has basically what we have in the new testament minus the book of revelation and so now he writes it to these seven churches and it circulates around them. Now, we don't have time to talk through all seven churches today, future sermon series, but I want to talk about one, and that's the church in Laodicea. Somebody say Laodicea. Laodicea. I want to talk about Laodicea because I think it directly, all of them fit us today, but I think Laodicea really fits us living in the West, living in America in a culture of abundance. And so I think Laodicea really does fit with, with who we are. So again, I want to talk about this church, and I want you to ask that question. When you're hearing what Jesus says, are we going to choose compromise or what? Faithfulness. Okay, let's let's look here. Revelation chapter 3. Flip over just a couple pages. Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write. Jesus is saying, John, I want you to write this to the church in Laodicea, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I want us to to stop there because this verse is so cool. Who says, who's saying this? Jesus, right? And what does he say? These are the words of the what? The amen. So who's the amen? Who is it? Isn't that cool? Jesus is the amen, right? Like, When you write a letter, like the words of the, you're not going to say amen, right? Like this is the words of the amen, right? The one who is and was and is to come. Like don't, don't miss the impact of Jesus' words there. This is the amen, the alpha and the omega, the one who spoke the world into creation, the beginning of God's creation. Jesus was the one Colossians, book of Colossians 1 says, spoke everything you see into creation. And he's the one telling John, write this letter to these churches, in church in Laodicea, because they have something they need to understand. So Jesus is speaking specifically to them, and I think he's speaking specifically to us. Now, before I tell you what he says, here's a picture of Laodicea. You can go visit it today. If you go to, uh, uh, to Turkey on the footsteps of Paul's journeys. you can go to Laodicea. Laodicea was an interesting place. It was like the county seat in that area that we saw. It was a very wealthy place. It was a banking center. They produced linens. They had medical centers. They produced eye salve and all kinds of things for eye injuries and diseases. But the one thing Laodicea did not have was good water. Put back that map, would you? That map of the seven cities. I want you to notice where Laodicea is. It's kind of just smack dab in the middle of Asia Minor. So there, you notice there's no like lake, there's no like giant rivers or bodies of water. The Mediterranean, the Aegean Sea are off to the side. There's mountains, but there's no lake or river from to pool from. So what they did was they piped their water in. They would, in those old days, they'd pipe water in. They pipe cold water in from the mountains. Cold water was used for drinking and refreshing things. But then hot water, they they pump in from hot springs for baths. And back in those days, mineral water was huge for healing, they thought. So they pipe in the water. Well, by the time the water got to Laodicea, it wasn't hot and it wasn't cold. And the people in Laodicea were wealthy. And so when they got water that was kind of lukewarm and they tried to drink it, What do you think that they did? What do you think they said? Not very refreshing, right? Like you guys ever popped like a Arnold Palmer on a hot day, right? Especially the Lipton one, right? With the Arizona Tea ones. That's something about that sound, isn't it good? You know? And you're like, ah, it's like the you know the Coke commercials, a little, you know what I'm talking about? You guys, you guys with me? It's like refreshing, right? It's so good. When they drank that water, they were like, this is terrible. It's not refreshing. It's not good. It's not even warm enough to take a bath in, you know? And, and so the people probably didn't smell very good, right? And so just think about it. This water was not good. Okay, hold that thought. Hold that thought. Notice what Jesus says. This is so good. It's, it's why you got to understand context is king. Somebody say context is king. context is king. Darren, context is king. All right, notice this, verse 15. Jesus says to them, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Sound familiar? Would you would this is a translation weird thing? Jesus is really saying, "I wish that you would be either cold or hot." So because you are what lukewarm? How many of you guys like drinking lukewarm water? How many got what well, one? Okay, I do actually do two. How many like how many of you guys like drinking lukewarm water with nasty minerals in it? None. Okay, good. See, you guys get my point. Lukewarm water with nasty minerals in it, right? How many like taking a bath in lukewarm water? If you do, you're weird, just saying. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will, what does Jesus say? Spit you out of my mouth. Man. Like, how would you like to meet Jesus? You're like, Jesus, I heard so many good things about you. He's like, yeah, I've met you too. And I want to spit you out of my mouth. Like, dang, Jesus is hardcore. Okay, but we're going to dig into this. I want you to see what he is actually saying. So, what is the last thing you spit out of your mouth, though? It, anybody spit anything out of their mouth since they were a kid? You guys, you guys aren't taking any risks. That's what I am hearing. Last week we went out to a restaurant and Chloe got a got a uh, um, a Fanta, but it was the syrup was all nasty in it. And you know she's like, "Dad, this is bad." And I I took a sip and I wanted to spit it out. Right? You ever get a soda with no cart with all carbonated water, no syrup? Right? You guys aren't like, "Oh my gosh, it's so good." Right? You want to spit it out? You're like you know, back in the cup, you know? Well, that's the picture Jesus gives us. So it's revolting. The only thing you're gonna spit out of your mouth is something revolting. And so Jesus is saying, guys, your deeds, your works, the way you are living your life and your faith, it's it's not cold, it's not hot. Instead, it's revolting. I mean, cold gives you that picture, right, of this life-giving, refreshing drink. Hot gives you this picture of this healing hot mineral bath. But Jesus is saying, you guys aren't either. I'm looking at the way you're living your life. I'm looking at the way you're doing church. I'm looking at the way you're trying to follow me. And it's not hot or it's not cold. I wish you were hot or cold, but you're not. You're in the middle and it's not very good. I think it's a challenge for all of us. If you looked at your life, if Jesus looked at your life and he saw how you lived out your faith and how you followed him, would he say that you are lukewarm or hot or cold? Now, no, what's interesting is a lot of people will read this and they'll say, well, is Jesus saying that they're gonna lose their salvation, right? These are people that said yes to him, that followed him, all of a sudden, they got caught up in other stuff, they're lukewarm. Is Jesus saying, I'm gonna spit you out of my mouth and you are done? No, I, 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 don't, I don't believe that's what Jesus is saying at all. And the reason I don't believe that is the context here. You guys will see it. But also, as I look at the words of God as God has revealed himself to us, I see what we call the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Somebody say that, perseverance, perseverance. of the saints. Of the saints. Here's, the pick, here's the idea of the perseverance of the saints. It's that if you have said yes to Jesus, you've put your faith in him and you truly believe that he is the son of God who came and lived a sinless life and died on the cross for your sins and rose from the grave, that at that point, you are saved by grace through faith. Your faith in him, through God's grace, has saved you. You didn't do anything. Ephesians 2, 8-10 through says that we are saved by grace through faith and not of ourselves. It's not our own work, so we can't boast. Like, you have been saved because of what Jesus did for you. Isn't that good news? Oh, man, it's good news. But that means you didn't do anything to earn it. And if you can't do anything to earn it, then what, can you do anything to lose it? Class? No. You can't. Now, you can mess up. You can wreck your life. You can make bad decisions. You can say hurtful things. But Jesus, if He has changed your heart and you are made new in Him, will forgive you and set you on the path to make things right, of redemption and reconciliation and repentance. So I don't believe that you can lose your faith if you are saved. Now I don't so I don't think Jesus is saying I'm going to spit you out of my mouth and you're going to be done. And and good luck, you've made a mistake. I think instead Jesus is using this word picture of the water that's coming in of trying to show us what happens when we compromise our faith. And what happens when we stop being faithful in what Jesus has called us to do and in who Jesus has called us to be. He says, you guys, you are lukewarm, that you are indifferent, that you compromised your faith and your lack of commitment and compromise is making me sick. Those are hard words, so what does it mean to compromise? Definition of compromise. It's accepting a standard that is lower than acceptable. So here's a, here's a, a thought if you're taking notes. See, I think what Jesus, is, in the Bible, teaches us about compromise is this, that compromise always forces you to trade the best for something less. When you compromise, no matter what it is, health, money, career, relationships, faith, you're trading the best for something less. And this is what Jesus is saying here. You are lukewarm. I'd rather you be hot, healing. I'd rather you be cold, refreshing, but you're neither. Instead, you try doing both and you compromise yourself, just like the water, and you're lukewarm. Years ago, I, uh, b- before God called us to Colorado, uh, we were in a super busy time in our, in our lives. We had little kids at home. I was in seminary. I was working full time, and I was leading, leading a, a church, and um, didn't have much time to work out, didn't have much time for myself, but I did have time for fast food, and I would spend a lot of time at local establishments, and I found that I wasn't feeling very good, and I was pretty unhealthy. And I had, I had put on a, a fair amount of weight. And so I decided I'm going to get in shape. And I told Courtney, girl, I'm going to be the man you married, right? And she's like, I don't even care about this stuff. I'm like, yeah, I know. I'm vain. I do, though. So I'm like, okay, so I, I get a workout plan. I'm talking to a trainer. He draws me up a plan. I'm like doing my research. And, of course, if you ever research how do you get healthy, the first thing says, work out all the time, eat whatever you want, right? No, no, no. It's diet and then work out and do exercise and get your heart right and your lungs right and everything like that. And so I decided, well, I don't like that plan, right? Instead, I like eating too much, so I'm gonna work out a lot, but I'm gonna take some diet pills. Yeah, I'm gonna take some pills that bump your metabolism up and make you not as hungry so I can still eat Chick-fil-A twice a day. Uh, it's the holy chicken sandwich. But I just won't eat as much Chick-fil-A twice a day. And I won't put as much ranch on the Chick-fil-A, right? And so I um, I start I start doing this. And I, I compromised. I want something good, which is health. And I compromised it with something that I thought would lead me there. But you know what ended up happening? I mean, I lost, like, some weight. But then I was sick. I just felt terrible all the time. I was kind of greenish in color. I mean, I'm pretty pink, peachish normally, right? (laughs) So green and pink, just, it's like that dress that you see on Facebook that you can't tell, is that blue or is that pink? You know what I'm talking about? That was me. They're like, what's wrong with this guy? And so then I I stopped taking the diet pills and guess what happened? (laughs) Right? Put it all right back on. I compromised. I'm sure you guys have never done that with diet pills, and, you know, I have to share my heart. It's an honest place, place to be honest. But the reality is we do this all the time in our lives. We do it with our careers. We do it with our relationships. In business, you want to make money. You want to do a good job. You want to grow your portfolio so you can take care of your family, and you see there's a shortcut. You see you don't have to do all that needs to be done to make it legit. But who's going to get hurt? Well, eventually you will, Right? We do it with our health all the time. All the time we do it with our health. Oh, it's no big deal. I'm just going to go get, you know, a, a delicious croissant covered in honey and almonds, and I'm just going to do it once, and then you're back every day for the week, right? Like, there's all these things that we do to trade the best for something less. And, here, and here's the thing is, is we always say this in a compromise, We always say, well, I want what God wants for me. I want to live the healthy, deep, rich, enjoyable lifestyle. But instead, I'm going to take the mediocre lifestyle because it's easier, because it's more fun, because it tastes better. But does it ever taste better? When you went and you dreamed about that box of milk duds and then you ate it, how did you feel? Terrible, right? Three milk duds, you're on cloud nine. 73 milk duds? And you're like laying on the couch, praying for the Lord to come back. You're like, Jesus, can we get to Revelation 20? Please, right? Too much of a good thing is a bad thing. Well, what happens is when we trade the best thing for something less, we end up with nothing. Someone once said that the problem with compromise is you get what you never wanted. And so here's this thing. Here's what I want to say. We have this desire deep down. We have this desire to experience the best. Because that's what God created us for. God created you to experience the best. He created you to experience deepness in relationships. He experienced you. He created you to experience deepness in your career. He experienced you to be able to have things that made you joyful and feel at peace and have this abundance. But yet we compromise. We trade the best for something less. And so we trade something good for that dopamine hit to buy something on Amazon. We trade something good for that time with God. We trade for time with Netflix. We we trade healthy living for fast food. We trade deep relationships for fly-by, shallow hangouts. We trade love, love for lust. And what happens is we end up with something we never wanted. We think it's gonna be good enough or it's gonna be close enough, but it's just not enough. And so time and time again, If you look at Jesus' word, Jesus is trying to help you see that compromise never leads you where you want to go, but faithfulness will. Jesus says so many times, the way to find life is to lose it. If you want to be first, make yourself last. If you want to be great, serve someone else. But yet we compromise our faith because Jesus says, hey, follow me. And yet we say, okay, Jesus, I will follow you, but at the same time, I'm going to live life for myself. And that causes a compromise. And we don't get anything good because it makes us lukewarm. And this is what Jesus is saying here. And in this case, with us, compromise comes down to what you're putting your trust in. Notice what he says in verse 17. What was the church in Laodicea putting their trust in? I want you to notice. Verse 17, it says this. For you say, he's talking to the church in Laodicea, I am rich and have prospered and I did nothing, not realizing that you were wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Dang. Well, what happened is Laodicea was a very rich town. And so they were putting their trust in their wealth. They were putting their trust in their industry. They were putting their trust in all of the things they had going on for them. And Jesus is saying, you guys are putting your trust in the wrong thing because you're hoping that money and wealth will lead you to happiness when ultimately I'm the only one that will lead you there. You know, it's like the book of Matthew, chapter 13. We get the parable of the sower. And Jesus says, well, depending upon the type of soil you are will, will dictate your your you know your producti- productivity. And he talks about there's bad soil that falls on the path and there's soil that falls in thorns and soil that soil, soil, seed that falls in the rocks and then there's seed that falls in good soil. And he says this in Matthew 13, 22, he says, as for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves." proves unfruitful. That when we think that wealth is what's going to fill our tank, then we are being lukewarm and we are trying to straddle two worlds and it will not prove to be fruitful and it will not prove to lead you where you want to go. It will not fill your tank. And so Jesus is saying here that compromise causes you to misplace your trust When you compromise, you think that the ultimate thing in your life is something other than following him. It's going to lead you to misplace your trust. Ask yourself, when you're in a moment, when you're thinking about the future and you're examining your life and you're feeling like a little fearful or anxious, what is the thing you think about that leads you to feel better? Is it your career? Wow, man, life is hard, but at least I got this good job. Oh man, life is hard, but at least my retirement account's looking good. I can retire early. Oh man, life is hard, but at least I've got my, my spouse. At least I've got Courtney, man. We're going to be okay no matter where we go. Life is, is uh, man, life is rough, but at least I live in a great country. Like, what is it, right? Because whatever you answer that question with is the thing that you're most likely compromising your faith with. Jesus saying, follow me, trust me. And we're going, Jesus, I trust you, but I'm also really focused on putting as much equity in my house as I can. That way I'm going to be fine if the zombies come, right, when the apocalypse comes. So, like, I think we need to ask ourselves that question. What are we putting in the place of Jesus that we are trusting rather than the son of God who says, look, I come and gave my life to you so you can have life. Follow me and trust me and work hard and do your best. And don't just sit on the couch and wait for me to come through, but put one foot after another faithfully and trust that I will lead you to where you need to go because I am enough. Somebody say, Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. And that is the theme that we see throughout all of Jesus' teachings. And I think he wants to ask the Laodicean church, he wants to ask you and me, where are we compromising? Where are we hoping that other things are gonna fill us up? Verse 18, notice this. So what does Jesus say? He says, hey, You guys are saying all these things. What should you say instead? What should you do? Instead, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. Remember, Laodicea, it was a banking center. It had a lot of gold. Jesus is saying, instead of the gold in the banks in Laodicea, come to me for the gold, the treasure of heaven. He says, buy from me gold so you may be rich. He says this, and buy for me white garments so you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. What does that mean? Well, Laodicea were known for their black wool. They would make beautiful black garments. So if you wanted a dress or a blanket or an overcoat or a Blinken a hat or a slash hat, more likely, uh, whatever it was, you could get it. So they all walked around town with their banks full of gold and their sweet black jackets. And he's like, instead, you need to buy from me white garments, which means you need to come to me and repent and and follow me and let me wash you white and clean. And notice the third thing he says, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you you may see. Laodicea was famous for the eye salve they created and that they produced there. And Jesus is saying, if you want to actually be faithful, then you need to come to me for your gold, and you need to put on my righteousness, and you need to let me help you to see. Does that make sense, guys? Notice context is king. Jesus is using all this context to tell these people things that they knew. So he can say, you need to be faithful and stop compromising what you're putting your trust in. Some of you know the story, of Mark 10. Jesus is talking to this rich guy, and the rich guy walks up to Jesus and goes, Jesus, what do I need to do to be saved? What do I need to do to experience eternal life? And Jesus gives him the rundown of, the, of some of the commandments, right? Like, don't steal, honor your mom and dad, don't kill anybody. He's like, I've done all these things. But Jesus knew that in his heart, he hasn't followed him. He doesn't know what it like, is like to have a relationship with God. And so Jesus says, okay, well, there's one thing that's keeping you from following me, and it's your money. So go and sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and follow me. And the Bible says that the rich man walked away sad. And the reason was that everything he had his hope wrapped up in was in money. And Jesus is saying, you're missing it. That is never going to do it for you. Instead, you need to trust and you need to follow me. So how about us? See, I think what Jesus is trying to teach these people is they need guardrails in their life. That faithfulness requires guardrails. Jesus is saying, guys, stop looking to the bank. Stop looking to the the manufacturers of clothing and medicine to be the the, the way you feel good about your life. Instead, you need to come to me. I need to be your guardrail. Put things in place that will help you guard your your heart and your mind so you don't go off path. You know, it's interesting. When we think about money, because Jesus is specifically talking about money here to the church in Laodicea. When we think about money... Do you know in the Bible, Jesus talks about money more than he does faith or prayer? You're like, yeah, you've told us that before. I'm telling you again. Like, he talks about money a lot. Jesus talks about money 2,000 times in the Bible. And we see that one of the guardrails that God sets up in his word is generosity. Not because God needs our money, because God owns the cattle on a 1,000 hills. God owns the hills on a 1,000 hills, right? Everything is God's. But God says, you need to be generous because that is a guardrail for your heart, because your heart will immediately drift towards whatever you think is going to fill your cup or whatever you think is going to make you happy. Instead, generosity first helps you put a guardrail to make sure you're trusting in the right thing. So in the Old Testament, you see that Jesus told the children of Israel that you need to give your first 10%, your first fruits of your cattle and of your produce, Because by giving this to God first and saying, okay, here it is, God. I'm going to live off the rest. It helps us put a guardrail in place so we can keep money from grabbing our hearts. I love what what, uh, what, what God says through Proverbs 11, 24 and 25. Notice this. This is good. It says, one who gives freely yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and the one who waters will himself be watered. Interesting biblical principle that when we give and we pour ourselves out, out God fills us back up, right? Because it's a guardrail that keeps our heart right. And so Jesus says, you need guardrails. You need to buy from me your gold. You need to buy from me your garments. You need to buy from me your eye salve, and not from the world, because what the world gives you is not going to work. And so often when we think about money, in churches, we talk about generosity because it's generosity that God wants to use to guard your heart from falling into the trap to thinking that the things the world offer you will actually solve the hole in your heart. only Jesus fills that hole. And so giving is a way to guide that. Matthew 6:21, Jesus says this that where you, for where your treasure is, your heart will also be. So where's your treasure? Jesus says the Laodiceans treasure in the wrong place. And I think he's asking us the same question. Like, where's your treasure? Last year, there was a financial institution that did a study on giving. And it found that the average churchgoer gives 2.5% of their income to the church. About 150 bucks um, to the church. And so it talked about 150 bucks a month. And so, uh, based on this study, and it found that that was equated to the, about the same amount of money we spend on clothes each month. And some of y'all are like, man, I wish I spent 2.5% on clothes, you know? Or you're more like, I wish my husband stopped buying new shoes, right? But, but it, yeah, somebody said, right, I hear it. Yeah. But, but really, the reality is, though, that, that churchgoers are giving to the church about as much money as they spend on a few new shirts a, a month. And so I wanna ask you, Would that be a guardrail to help things not grab your heart? I don't think so. I think, I I don't think so. Now, I I think when we look at the Bible, the Bible doesn't tell us how much money to give. The New Testament doesn't tell us how much money to give. Although Jesus does want us to be cheerful givers. But the idea is that if you aren't giving generously, you're missing one of the main ways that God blesses you. If you're not giving generously to your church and to God's kingdom, you're missing one of the ways that God fills your cup And if you're not giving, you're you're missing. One of the main ways that God puts guardrails on your heart so you don't compromise other things, and instead you faithfully can follow Jesus. Notice how Jesus finishes this letter to them. He says in verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline, so be zealous and repent. He's wanting them to see that they've fallen away, that they've gone off path. And so it's time to repent, to say, God, I'm sorry for following my way. I repent and I turn and I follow you. Repentance is a biblical principle. I, I, if we're gonna truly follow Jesus, we have to repent and we have to turn and say, God, your way is best. Notice what Jesus says. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him, and he will come to me. Here's the thing. Jesus doesn't say, hey, you guys messed up. I'm done with you. I'm going to spit you out of my mouth, and I'm done. I'm going somewhere else because you guys are a bunch of whatever." Instead, he goes, hey, you're lukewarm, and you're you're revolting to me. But you know what? Repent because I'm at the door, and I'm about to come in, and we're about to feast together. We're about to come in, and this is going to be Thanksgiving dinner every single day, minus the MSGs and the tryptophan, right? Like, life is going to be good, but you got to repent. you got to realize you're doing it the wrong way, that you're following the wrong thing, and you need to come and you need to follow me. And you do that by putting guardrails in your life and coming to me for your gold and your garments and your eye salve. You're coming to me for your grace and your mercy and your peace. You're coming to me for your hope and your trust and your happiness. And Jesus is looking at us saying, hey, Forefront Church, 2023. It's time to repent too, because I'm at the door, and I'm ready to come in, and I've got the good food with me, not the stuff you're trying to eat. I've got the real stuff. Notice what Jesus says in verse 21, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, and I also conquered, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Jesus says, when you follow me and you are faithful, we will Endure together. Notice this. This is the last thing I want to say is that Jesus wants us to experience a faithfulness that endures. But we have to decide not to compromise, but instead to truly be faithful and follow Him. You guys probably wonder what this is. Somebody wondered what this is? I'm not going to throw it, I promise. But here's what I want you to think about. When we think about our faith and we think about what it looks like to follow Jesus, Jesus calls us to step out and follow him. And sometimes it can be awfully scary, right? Sometimes it can be scary. It's like standing on a balance beam. Any gymnasts in here? Just Pete, it. So it's like standing on a balance beam. And Jesus says, follow me, trust me. But gonna, you're gonna be afraid and you're gonna wanna fall. You can think you're going to fall. And here's what happens. We start to follow Jesus, and all of a sudden we start to realize that this is scary, and this is hard. And so we, we think, well, there's these other things in life, too, that are pulling on my heart. Maybe, maybe I can do both. So we put a foot down. And we say, well, God, Jesus, yes, I believe that you're going to bring me to happiness and joy and abundance, but I also think that my career or my family or my bank account can get me there, too. So I'm going I'm to hold on. I'm just gonna take a foot off the beam. Jesus, don't worry, I'm here. But then a little time goes on. We're like, well, you know, Jesus, I trust you, man. But you know, man, things are really going good at work, right? And then things get really hard and we start to kind of hold on, right? We're like, Jesus, I don't wanna let go. Jesus, and then we find ourselves we're not even holding on to Jesus anymore because we're, we're now trusting in all these other things, And ultimately, we've compromised. We've walked away from following Jesus, and now we're just trying to keep up with what we think is going to make us happy. But what would it be if we stood back up on the beam? If I can stay up on it. What would it be if we lived our lives realizing that it's going to be scary, but that as we walk, we can trust that Jesus is going to lead us to to where we want to go. I didn't practice that part. (laughs) I think Jesus is telling you guys and me that we need to get back up on the beam and we need to trust him and we need to follow him because he's the only one that's gonna lead us to joy and peace and hope and abundance and fullness because all these other things are just tricks. But it's following him takes boldness. And when when we fall off, which we will, we get right back up again. That's what it means to be faithful. And when we recognize, because the guardrails in our life, that we've compromised, we repent and we get back on. So where do you need to repent? Where do we need to repent and say, Jesus, I have compromised my faith by trusting in these other things or or relying on these other things or taking my eyes off you. And instead, we need to get back up on the beam. Maybe for some of you, it is money. And you're one of those that said, hey, I've been trusted in, in something other than you, Jesus. And I, I haven't been generous because I think that if I can just do better over here and I can just have a little more money in my bank account and I can just have a little bit nicer car and I can just have a little bit better retirement, then I'm gonna be happy. And Jesus is going, how's that working out for you? I think we all would say, not very well. And Jesus is saying, when you're generous with what I've blessed you with, Give it away because I'm going to fill you right back up. So for some of you that may say, it's time for me to just give something because I haven't been. And for others, it's time for us to maybe get more faithful and regularly give. And for some of us, it's time to, maybe we've been given one or 2%. Maybe we're the, we're the, we're the average. We've been given two and a half percent. It's time for us to go to three or four or five or from five to 10 or from 10 to 12, whatever it is between between you and God. But God is trying to say it is this important to keep you on the beam because otherwise we'll compromise ourselves and we'll be lukewarm and that's never where we want to be. So here's my prayer for us, that this week that we can lean into the book of Revelation and say, God, reveal to me, have I become lukewarm? Is my faith not where it should be because I'm trusting in something else? It can be a good thing I'm trusting in, but it can't be the best thing. And God, help me to shape my eyes, my mind, my heart on you and your word so I can follow you in faithfulness and know that when I mess up, you'll pick me right back up again. But I'm gonna trust and follow you every single day. Would you pray with me, guys?